0: Bonjour, MBM Venue. Hello, and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and this is where we dare to ask the question Who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? Since this is our first podcast of the 2024 season, I should also say Bonnie. Maniac Gene from Toronto suggested that I publish some of the stories that ended up on the cutting room floor for the 2023 year-end in review podcast. I agree with her. So we're going to focus on those stories that missed being published in our last episode. Like Maniac Gene, you can contact me by email at MeyerFacts at gmail. In late September, we dropped two podcasts on the Peshtigo Fire. During the fun fact portion of part two, I discussed the introduction of polyfluoroalkyls, or PFAS, into our groundwater and environment. Here is that excerpt. And as to the sand dunes south of Marinette that acted as a barrier which split the fire, sparing the city, it became a veritable playground for those who wanted to spend their time exploring. Eventually, it was used as a testing ground for Ansel Chemical Company, which specialized in the production of fire suppression chemicals. A significant development has been the recent discovery of chemicals known by the acronym PFAS (PFAS) in the soil, groundwater, and surface water in the area. Discharges of PFAS to the environment occurred as a result of training, testing, research and development of a type of PFAS containing firefighting foam. Outdoor training with this foam occurred from the 60s until 2017. Fish and deer consumption advisories have been issued for the area, as well as restrictions on using private wells and open stream water. It is an extremely important issue that warrants our future attention. In early 2023, the Wisconsin State Senate introduced legislation setting aside $125 million to help communities like Peshtigo and Marinette tackle the problem. However, there is a legitimate concern that the bill prevents the Department of Natural Resources from taking enforcement action against the commercial and industrial interest that caused the proliferation of the PFAS to begin with. The state assembly has not acted on the bill and the monetary amount provided is clearly insufficient. PFAS is not only persistent in the environment and the human body, but these forever chemicals have been linked to human illnesses, including cancer, hormone issues, harm to the immune and reproductive systems, and lower birth weights. Numerous communities affected by the presence of PFAS have filed suit against the PFAS manufacturers and their insurance companies. One has to wonder if the legislation was proposed at the insistence of the manufacturers as an end run around civil liability. Some of the communities filing suit have included Wausau, town of Peshtigo, the town of Campbell near La Crosse, and the town of Stella in Oneida County. The Wisconsin Health News Network recently held a round table on the PFAS problem and it was reported by Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin Health News hosted the panel, focusing in part on current legislation to create grants for local governments and landowners to address PFAS pollution. The GOP bill has seen pushback from environmental groups and some Democrats because it limits the state's authority to address the chemicals. Town of Campbell Supervisor Lee Donahue said during the panel discussion that communities like hers can't afford to wait. There is a legal part of this, And then there's the part that we live day to day, which is we are trying to stop the PFAS contamination at the source. Donahue says taxpayers, not polluters, are currently bearing the costs and negative health effects from Forever Chemicals. She says communities need both state and federal action to find solutions and stop further contamination. Hope Kerwin, Wisconsin Public Radio. The words and comments by Lee Donahue, really struck me. They reminded me of two excellent movies that recounted the saga of two small communities trying to address the chemical contamination of local waters by DuPont in one case and by W.R. Grace and Beatrice Foods in the other. The two movies are A Civil Action released in 1999 and Dark Waters released in 2019. Both are excellent as are the underlying books. It needs to be noted that PFAS contamination doesn't just occur in small town Wisconsin. Recently, the water systems of Miami, New Orleans and Philadelphia have revealed the presence of these forever chemicals. In late August, a shipwreck was discovered just off of crescent-shaped 87-acre Green Island located in Green Bay. The only sign of any human impact on the island is an abandoned lighthouse. The discovery made national and international news. A minor fun fact is that the island is located about four miles from the shoreline where I used to lifeguard. It was the only observable landmass from my lifeguard station, and I checked it daily for any signs of human activity. Being at a shipwreck, I checked in with our expert from the 926 podcast on the Elvin Clark, Jordan Shack, marine archeologist from the State Historical Society. So, uh, what's the latest with the maritime preservation program at the State Historical Society?
1: So, the latest, um, obviously, because it's now made international and national news, is the discovery of the wreck of the George Newman. The it's kind of a crazy story that um, the guy who discovered it was a fisherman named Tim Wolack and he was out fishing with his daughter Henley Wollack off of Green Island in uh, Green Bay. He had first located this wreck uh, with his fish-finding sonar in August, and he kind of kept it in the back of his mind, because it was something interesting, but he had really believed he found the wreck of the Erie L. Hackley. Uh, But the Erie L. Hackley is a steamship, and it's in... just over 100 feet of water Uh, and it's pretty well known and well documented. So what he found was in 10 feet of water or less and it was off of Green Island. He put up a picture in like October uh, that was a screenshot from his fish finder in a Facebook group called uh, Forgotten Wisconsin group that I'm a part of and uh, when he posted that and said hey I thought think I found the Eriel Hackley I had uh, checking Facebook while at work, and I turned to my boss, Tamara Thompson, who is um my colleague that uh, and I was like, "I don't think this is the Hackley." And she was like, "Yeah, definitely not, Um because she just dove it before. As we had talked before, my one of my roles here at the Historical Society's outreach, I followed up with Tim uh, over Facebook Messenger. I reached out to him and I said, "Hey, I'm with the Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, I think you found something cool that we don't know about. Uh, Could you give us some more information about your find? And he was very, very receptive. And so he was able to get more pictures that he took with his fish finder. And then he gave us the GPS coordinates of his find. With that data, I was able to go into our shipwreck database that we maintain based on the location and the depth of water off of Green Island, because it's like on a shoal just to the south and east of Green Island, that it matched up roughly with the location of a wreck we know of, the George L. Newman. So that's how we put together the identification.
0: Is um, the, I'm sorry, is the no. Newman t- is the Newman tied into the Peshtigal Fire at all?
1: Yes, it is. And I'm glad you asked that. So this is another, not only that, it is the second shipwreck in Wisconsin that it has, that is tied in with the story of the Peshtigo Fire, the other one being the Major Anderson. Both these ships sank for a, a similar reason. The Newman, however, was sailing north out of Green Bay, out of Little Swamico, with a load of lumber, and they sailed headlong into all of the smoke that was coming from the Peshtigo Fire, uh, going across the lake and i can't even imagine what that must have been like uh i mean certainly we got ideas this summer with the canadian smog but they were completely sailing blind through this uh and they just happened to run aground on green island because they couldn't see where they were going even though the lighthouse keeper on green island had thought ahead and had the light going Uh, During the day, just because of all the smog, for whatever reason, the crew of the Newman missed it and they ran aground uh, on Green Island.
0: So what's next for your group in terms of evaluating this wreck?
1: Being that this wreck is, uh, you know, on bottomlands of Wisconsin, it is already protected by the uh, Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987. So uh, it is legally protected already but the next steps that we're going to take is once once it isn't winter anymore uh we're going to return we're going to go out to the wreck on our own with uh our group of volunteer divers and we're going to document it we're going to take images we're going to take measurements we're going to do the archaeology uh we're going to make all of take all of that information and make a plan view drawing that documents the whole of the shipwreck from Um, Stem to stern. And that's going to be the archaeological survey of it. That's going to be the fieldwork of it. And then obviously with the George L. Newman, yeah, we we know the basic story of this ship, but we don't know all of it. Uh, So this has provided another opportunity to fill in that story and find out more about the history of this. Because George L. Newman being built in 1855, uh, that's very early in terms of Wisconsin shipwrecks. Even the type of ship that it was rigged as was a very early type of great lakes sailing ship it wasn't your uh, much like when we talked about the Alvin clark it's it wasn't your um run-of-the-mill great lakes schooner so uh, because of that it's also a earlier type ship it's also a three masted ship and that's going to be another thing that we're going to look at uh archaeologically because obviously for what very little is there but the steps or the holes that you would put your masts in will still be there So that would also help with the identification of the George L. Newman.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Jordan.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Looking back over the episodes from the past year, it is obvious that we covered a lot of territory and that the Minions did a bang up job on research. We talked about geological phenomena, such as the 1964 Good Friday earthquake and the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption, all the way to the fascinating history of the Red Gem, which dropped on February 8th, followed the next week by an episode on the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But the minions were never more prescient on a present-day topic, then by having Professor Howard Schwaber as a guest on April 12th to discuss the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, followed by a specific analysis by the minions of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment the following week, April 19th. The Colorado Supreme Court has made Section 3 front and center by disqualifying Trump from the ballot. On April 19th, Meyer Fun Facts said in part the following. A couple other Meyer Fun Fact Maniacs inquired as to whether the 14th Amendment can be used to expel a member of Congress. The short answer to this inquiry is yes. Section three of the 14th Amendment, known as the Disqualification Clause, prevents any member of Congress, officer of the United States, or member of a state legislature, judge, or executive from serving in Congress or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States if, number one, they have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, and two, they engage in insurrection or rebellion against the state. It was designed to keep the federal and state governments free of those who had engaged in the armed insurrection by the Confederacy. There remain many nuanced questions about this provision, including its scope, applicability, and procedure. However, there is a Meyer fun fact associated with the use of this clause subsequent to the era of Reconstruction. Section three was invoked and Congress refused to allow Victor Berger editor of the Milwaukee Leader, a socialist daily paper to be seated after being elected to Congress in 1918. Highly active in his opposition to U.S. participation in World War I, he was eventually indicted for violation of the Espionage Act of 1917. Although under indictment, the voters of Milwaukee elected him to the house. After he was disqualified Wisconsin had a special election to fill the seat and Berger got elected a second time once again not being allowed to serve. His criminal trial was presided over by Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis who later became the first commissioner of Major League Baseball and obtained lifetime notoriety by permanently barring from baseball the eight White Sox players who were acquitted at trial of fixing the 1919 World Series. But Landis's verbal conduct in his judicial capacity resulted in Berger's conviction being reversed by the United States Supreme Court in 1921 And Berger was elected once again to the House in 1922, serving through 1928. Berger never challenged the procedure that was used in the process of his disqualification. But the reality is that any such procedure is not set forth in the Constitution which is not an unusual fact. We have rules for starting a war, but not ending them. We have rules for entering a
2: treaty, but not not c- canceling them. The Constitution leaves all kinds of sort of. If there are two halves to a process, there are numerous instances where one is
0: specified and the other just looks blank. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but my gut tells me that although it's clear, Trump was and is an insurrectionist under section three of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court is going to save his butt by blaming Congress for failing to pass enabling legislation as allowed by section five of the amendment. Professor Schwaber and I discussed section five in the April 19th podcast. Both, all three of these amendments have a clause that does not appear, to my knowledge, in any other amendment, which basically says, as I understand it, Congress can pass any laws to enforce this amendment.
2: It is appropriate
0: legislation. And why was that included? And what's the practical effect of that? That's a really good and really important question. The 13th,
2: 14th, and 15th Amendments, were not originally understood to primarily about giving a new job for courts. The initial understanding was that these amendments would empower Congress, that there would be a new body of federal laws that require states to respect rights. The idea that this is primarily a mandate for courts to apply constitutional rights really comes significantly later. Those authorization clauses, it's the fifth clause of the 14th Amendment, it's the second clause of the 13th providing Congress with the authority to uh, uh, enact appropriate legislation were thought of as the equivalent of what's called the Necessary and Proper Clause in Article One, Section 8. So Article One of the Constitution gives Congress a bunch of powers. And then at the end, it says Congress can make whatever laws are appropriate to exercise these powers. That's how these three amendments were drafted as well. Here's a power for Congress, and Congress may make the laws needed to give them effect. It's only later that the courts take over and say, no, it's our job to determine what this means.
0: On November 15th, during part two of the podcast on the dam that never was, I noted the following Meyer fun fact. And speaking of towns having to move because of flooding, the town of Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin, located south of Lafarge on the Kickapoo River, is notable for having relocated its central business district away from the river in the late 70s, early 80s. This action by the town has become a case study nationally in best practices for communities addressing these types of issues. This comment about Soldiers Grove caused Maniac Linda Jay to ask the question, how do you move a town? I'm not sure there's a template for every community, but I can talk about how Soldiers Grove did it. In tandem with the Lafarge Dam, the Army Corps of Engineers proposed a $3.5 million levee system to protect the downtown. The cost was three times the value of the structures to be protected and the yearly maintenance cost would exceed the total budget of the village. As one resident put it, a levee would turn us from a dying town subject to flooding to a dying town protected from flooding. For decades, Soldiers Grove, with an estimated population of 600, had debated a different plan. Instead of spending all the money on trying to control the river, they proposed spending less to move the flood-prone areas of the town. But this was met with more problems. No U.S. community had ever voluntarily moved except for villages that would be flooded because of the construction of a dam. Instead of the levee, Soldiers Grove proposed to take the core funding and relocate the flood-prone half of the town to uphill land off of the floodplain. Town leaders purchased a 190-acre site south of downtown at a higher elevation. When the Lafarge Dam got canceled, so did remaining funding for the relocation. When a devastating flood ripped through the community in 1978, local officials armed with the research results of feasibility studies convinced state and federal officials that the move would be the best flood proofing for the village. The role of the state government factored heavily into the move. The Department of Natural Resources was the first to fund the village's move with a second well and water supply grant to assure safe water at all times, in contrast to the repeated contamination problems due to the flooding. A combination of state and local funds provided over a third of the estimated $6 million total project. The village applied for and successfully received grants for the remaining costs from federal agencies, including HUD's Community Development Block Grant Program. These block grants can be used to assist communities recovering from a disaster Using significant community input and professional land use planning resources, along with resources provided by the University of Wisconsin Extension, village leaders were able to build a consensus around land use planning, legal options, a study of energy use, and ongoing business advice for relocated businesses. By 1983, the project was completed with the movement of 36 businesses, three municipal facilities, and numerous homes. At the time, with oil embargoes and increased national concern for energy conservation, solar heating was incorporated in over 20 of the buildings constructed. It is now sometimes referred to as the solar village. The former downtown is now a municipal park. That concludes our first episode of season four, 2023 on the cutting room floor. But before we say adios to 2023, we have a special award to those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this year's winner is our former governor, Scott Walker. If you recall during the March 29th podcast, the invasion of Toronto and the war of 1812, we noted that Walker drove his presidential campaign into a ditch by suggesting we take a look at building a wall across our northern border with Canada. Despite the fact it is over 5,500 miles long interspersed with four great lakes. In the spirit of doubling down and proving stupidity knows no limits, on November 22nd, when an unhappy couple driving from the US to Canada to go to a casino crashed at the rainbow bridge at a high rate of speed and fox news irresponsibly reported that it was an attempted terror attack walker doubled down and issued a press release asserting he'd been vindicated about the need for a northern wall on the border in order to be safe from terrorists but enough of 2023 we have three podcasts in the works. They are the story of Joshua Glover and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Another Northern Wisconsin tale, this time out of Clam Lake, Wisconsin, focusing on Project Elf, or sometimes known as Project Sanguine. And just maybe we'll have one on the most famous Wisconsin fugitive, Leo Burke. But then we're going to expand our podcast beyond the state of Wisconsin. So send me your suggestions and comments to meyerfacts at gmail.com. I'm going to try to drop a podcast weekly, but sometimes it'll be two weeks due to the amount of work involved. So until our next podcast, take care.